This is episode 7 of the Now Is podcast. My name is Ben Remsen, and the idea of this podcast is to do a recorded version of the concept that you might know from Downbeat Magazine's Blindfold Test and The Wire Magazine's Invisible Jukebox, to play tunes for musicians without telling them what they're about to hear and see what they have to say. What follows is the conversation that I had with James Falzone on January 13th, 2016, in my living room in the Rogers Park neighborhood of Chicago. James is a clarinetist, composer, and improviser who works at the intersection of jazz, classical, and world musics. You're currently hearing me talk over the John Dowland composition, Flow My Tears, performed by his early music festival group from the 2015 release, Lacrimé. At the end of this interview, you'll hear Not Seeing by the Renga Ensemble from the album The Room Is, also from 2015. In addition, James leads the group's Alos Musica Ensemble and the more jazz-oriented quartet Clang, the latter of which you'll hear us discussing in a few minutes. James also plays in many other musicians' ensembles in a variety of improvised settings and has performed and recorded extensively solo. On top of all that, James is on faculty at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and is the director of music at Grace Chicago Church. To find out more about James, check out allosmusica.org a-L-L-O-S-M-U-S-I-C-A dot O-R-G. A note about the forthcoming audio. With this seventh monthly episode, the Now Is podcast has crested the half-year mark and runs the risk of becoming exceedingly professional. As perhaps a subconscious attempt to avoid this fate, I accidentally forgot to turn on the clip-on mics that were affixed to our lapels during this interview. As a result, I have only sound from the room mic, meaning our conversation is low in the mix 
in a way that could be called frustrating, but which I propose should be heard as charmingly DIY. You can find the Now Is podcast in the iTunes store. Perhaps you already have. You can also stream it at nowis.org, N-O-W-I-S.org, where you'll find information about all the tracks that I played for James. Feel free to like the Now Is podcast on Facebook. Okay, James Falzoni. So I went back and I listened to tons of Goodman and realized, wow, what, there's some really special music here. And there was a lot I had never listened to before and a lot that I, I needed to go check out. There was a time when I played a lot of this music. There was a swing craze back in the 90s. I don't know if you yeah, were old enough to remember, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and here in Chicago, there was a band called the Riff Rockets that I played in. Tim Olvena played drums. Uh, a number of other great, great musicians, and we played almost every night, swing dancing, uh, for swing dancing. It was great. We had white dinner jackets, and uh, we played some really authentic Goodman stuff. Uh, Jane Baxter Miller was the vocalist, who's Kent Kessler's wife. Um, so it was, a, it was a lot of great musicians playing some really great music, and I, that was when I began to realize the Goodman world was much bigger than I thought. But then I let that go, went off to graduate school, got into other weird and esoteric music, and then when I came back to Goodman for this project for the Jazz Festival, again, I unearthed a lot of really important music that I had never checked out before. And, uh, and I realized his importance not only as a clarinetist, as a jazz artist, but also his importance in kind of a larger musical world, you know, he, for American music. He did a lot of interesting things, and hearing his tone and hearing the way he plays, and it, it's still not the kind of how I want to sound as a clarinetist, but one of the things that I, I really loved about getting deeply into his music was the groups that he would put together, and mm. the way he would constantly be spurred on by musicians who were different and or better than him. Like mm. You heard Charlie Christian there, Charlie Christian was a monstrous musician, you know? 
and really a pioneer in so many ways. Goodman was not a pioneer, at least as a musician, maybe as a band leader, as a thinker, but not as a player. Um, but Christian was as a player, and Goodman, I think, learned from him. And you can hear Goodman getting like energized and spurred on by the players around him. And that, that is admirable, and I hope I always do that and, and get a chance to be around musicians uh, either by choice or by happenstance that are spurring me on and it, it's that's already happened in my life but i want to always be about that seems like a good goal so you opened um i mean i yeah i've, been, I've listened to that that album um other doors and you know it opens and closes with an abstraction on that yeah that melody which yeah. is obviously why i gave you that kind of softball first one um is that a um was that just something that was brought on by this project, or do you often like to take standards and sort of try to do sort of um, mm. yeah abstractions on them? I do uh, like to do that. And why? <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, you know, a, a substantial part of my background is playing what we might just call jazz, for lack of a better term. You know, um, standards, and I studied with one of the great jazz artist in Chicago, Rich Corpolongo, who's a great clarinetist and saxophonist. And I studied with him for almost 10 years as a kid, from when I was 10 to when I was 18, and I'm still in touch with him and think of him as, a, as my teacher always. But, you know, he put me through the paces of playing jazz standards, and, and uh, though I, I don't do that a lot in terms of my recorded work or in public settings, I still often will... will play through standards just as my own, in my own practice routine. And so I do like to think about what's it like to take some of those songs that have such a, such baggage behind them, you know, how many times has these foolish things been recorded? I mean, thousands upon thousands. And I don't really feel like I have anything unique to say to it, uh, but that solo abstraction of being in a recording studio by myself, on a, I remember it being kind of late at night and just playing a bunch of versions of that tune and thinking, well, let's see what that sounds like, and then finding a couple that I felt like captured some of the the sounds, that the abstracted sounds of Goodman through, filtered through Jimmy Jufri and the kind of clarinetist that I'm interested in. Um, you know, it, it felt like it worked as a, as a bookend on that record. Uh, so yes, I do enjoy uh, still having standards as a part of my musical world, even if I might not play them too often publicly or record them, but they're, they're still important, as, as they are to, to any musician, really, whether you're a jazz musician or not. There's great compositions, beautiful forms and harmonies and melodies, and, um, and it's fascinating to hear the many versions of them. I mean, recently, you know, last week we lost Paul Blay, and of so many musicians were putting out his great solo on All the Things You Are, you know, what a way to transcend a standard that has been played and recorded a thousand and one times. And here's this, if you come in just in the middle of that tune on, on Blaze solo, you have no idea what song that is, right? <laughs> and yet, once you start dissecting it, you realize, wow, he's playing over the changes of all the things you are. It's brilliant. So there's, there's, still, there's still room for uh, creativity in that music, I think. Mm -hmm. That's Jimmy Jufri. Coming in here, 
Ready and Steve Swallow. So good job predicting by talking about people. Yeah. If I had any, oh gosh, even just hear, hearing the way they play this, I, it's hard for me to even want to talk over this. listening to this in my drives going from Boston back to Chicago during holidays. My wife would be sleeping and I'd be listening to this going through the Berkshires. <laughs> so maybe it's just embedded in my mind, you know, as music will do. But um, So kind of going back to your question, uh, what about this is everything to me? It's the sound, it's the way they're playing so intimately with one another. These guys were reading each other's minds in a way that I think is we're, we're always looking for in great, especially great improvised music. But, but they, these guys were really into something special with these, these records, you know. Um, and then there's just this composition. I've always loved this melody. I've always loved the way that they're accompanying this. This kind of um, you know abstracted, almost atonal uh, harmonic sensibility, but yet still grounded somewhere. Um, you can almost hear free fall about to be born. Yeah, yeah. Here, yeah, I agree with you, yeah. Um, and then I just, I love this instrumentation. Um, now, and then on top of all of that, there's the fact that this music helped me. Like, I was probably in my early 20s when I first got this record. It was when it was re-released on ECM, the two-record set. And I had known about Jufri, I had checked him out a little bit, I had some of the essential records, but I really didn't know this trio. And so when I heard this trio, I can, I can remember listening to it for the first time, just thinking, that's it, there it is, you know, that's, that's, that's 
what I've been after. Um, I'm glad to know it's already been done. And how can I use it, learn from it, grow with it, uh, pay homage to it, uh, and bring it to a new place? Um, all those kinds of things that you, you know anybody does when they hear music that really moves them. You, you're inspired. You're scared. You're in awe. You wonder. Should I even keep doing it? Because I, if I feel that strongly about this, why would I want to keep doing it? You know. Um, but you do. But I do. Um, and you know, there are moments when I know that I sound intentionally too much like him, and people go, "Oh, you know, it's, he sounds like Jufri," um, and I don't think I do at all. You know, I mean, I. I can, because I know what he's doing with his embouchure and what kind of read he's using and all that kind of stuff, and I can do an imitation, but it's it's really just, I mean, I've listened to Jufri so much that there's no way it's not going to filter in and affect me, even though, you know, I play the clarinet much differently than he does. Differently in what way? Uh, well, I mean, technically speaking, like, I have more uh, facility across the range of the instrument than Jufri did, right? I don't say that in any kind of self-righteous way, it's just not... It's not how he played the instrument. He got much better later on in his life, but his his major kind of uh, way of approaching the instrument was in the lower registers. Um, he he didn't have as much control over the upper uh, partials of the instrument, which doesn't change anything. Doesn't mean anything. He, he you know it's just simply how he played the horn. Sure. So. So I tend to um, play a little much higher and indulge the kind of full range than mm -hmm. he does. He also played, uh, as far as I know, he played double lip on for sure. And so that, which is both lips across the reed, whereas mm -hmm. I'm not playing that way. And so there's a little different way of uh, the, that the instrument kind of bounces in his mouth. And mm -hmm. so there's a little different way that it's a little more subtle. But the sound of his clarinet, his aesthetic, his approach, the sound of that trio, and really almost everything the man did, I'm interested in. I have a couple records that I found. Uh, I, I was a student of Rand Blake's, and Rand had this amazing record collection. And he, I would sometimes go and just look through it, and it was in a, a storage room at, at the conservatory. And I found some records of Jufri's that I'd never heard of before, and I'm forgetting the names of them, but uh, they were just sort of like one-offs during the early 80s. And they, they were not strong records, you know, like these kind of things that sort of mid-career artists sometimes conjure up and you think, well, jazz in the 80s. Yeah, <laughs> like what was that guy thinking? I, I mean, I'm sure I've made and maybe we'll make that record myself. The one where somebody's like, what was that dude thinking? Uh, but, but even in those records that aren't so strong, he still sounds great, yeah. right, you know. So, um, my, probably my favorite record really, you know, maybe hands down is this record called the Jimmy Jufri clarinet which is such a weird record in so many ways but that that opening of just him with his foot tapping uh, I think it's called down home is the name of that tune and I heard that when I was 11 years old uh, and I remember just thinking I don't know quite what's happening but I know it's important right there's something there that I know is important and I sort of filed it away as you know deal with later <laughs> and I, I've been you know been doing that ever since
let's see. So it, it's fooling me a little bit. It could be Palestrina, uh, but it sounds, there are times when it's too chromatic for Palestrina. So I'm, I'm quite sure I'll be able to figure out who it is. Um, I thought for a second it was Gisualdo, but it's not chromatic enough for Gisualdo, so it, you know, it, it falls in there somewhere where I might not pull up the composer. Um, but obviously you've played this because of probably two things you might have, you know, in your research. Uh, one is, is my love of early music, yeah, the fact that I had this early music project but also the fact that I work in liturgical music as well, and direct music at a church, and I probably listen to music like this as much as I've listened to Jufri uh, or Coltrane or, or Stockhausen or anything else. Yeah. Um, so I, why I get in, why I've been interested in this music is actually very similar to what I'm interested in that Jufri trio. It's, it's this, this glue that brings this music together, you know? It's the kind of intimacy and the kind of um, asking you to be drawn in, in a way that I can't necessarily put my finger on, and probably as long as we talk here today, I'm not going to be able to tell you exactly what I think that is, right? You're not allowed to wait. The mystery of it is what I'm drawn to. What I hope to maybe provide in the work that I'm doing, maybe. Um, so, but something draws me in to, to want to be involved in listening to this. Ah, see right there, that's not Palestrina. So, uh, it's just Waldo. It's just Waldo, okay. All right, so I was. See, but there's times when it's not. Quite as chromatic as Gisualdo, but tends to be a little bit more in Gisualdo's sort of smaller motets. I'm not quite sure what this is. I'm not recognizing all the Latin, but yeah. it's not a mass setting. But um, I'm not going to know much about the context. It's a piece is called uh, Miserere. Miserere. It's, yeah. Okay. So it's um, it's not from the mass, but it's uh, it's a setting of the Miserere text. Um, but sometimes Gisualdo can be wildly chromatic yeah. in a beautiful way and there's hints of that which is why I thought of him of course but um, but it almost doesn't go quite into that enough I got it's crazy uh, yeah. to, you know they, so the story goes killed his wife and yeah, all this yeah, kind of stuff yeah. um, it's sure. a fascinating character but so you know I'm, I'm, there's something about these kinds of intimate, I use that word again, introspective, drawing you in sounds that I'm really intrigued by. On recording, but also in compositions that might be performed live or might just exist on the page, or just in aesthetic. Um, and it's not, it's interesting as I examine it, it's beyond music for me, it's also about voices. I'm really fascinated by voices. I grew up, uh, the first thing I ever heard then was the voice of Studs Terkel on recording. So, and I was, I love the sound of his voice. Uh, so, and I, when I hear something like this, I'm, I'm drawn in and, um, and then I'm also just interested in the history of liturgical music. And so that fascinates me to think about 
okay, why would just want to make this? Who commissioned him? What what was he thinking putting that dissonance in there? Did the did the church officials allow it? Did they like it? Did they give him a hard time for it? Did he even care? Um, I thought for a minute, minute it was Palestrina. Palestrina supposedly saved polyphony in Western music, which I think is a apocryphal, probably mythical uh, story, but it's a lovely idea that playing pop polyphony for the Pope, and the Pope has said, if, if it can be this beautiful, we're going to keep it, you know, like, that's a really great, this is the, I think, the Council of Trent in the uh, 16th century, so that's like, I mean, a really fascinating story, whether it's true or not. Um, so what have you, I mean, you've done um, this early, recently, this, this early music project that draws mm -hmm. in a lot of, like, very experimental moves. Um, so what, is there something in particular, aside from just merging two interests, is there something uh, in particular about early music that, uh, or music of this period that um, mm -hmm. you think sort of dovetails with very contemporary improv? Like the chromaticism? Yeah, well, I mean, not much of this music was chromatic, so Gesualdo is, is, you know, is, is the place to go to for the chromaticism. So it's not so much about that. There's certainly modality that I'm interested in. I, I, I love modality in all different forms, and so this music is modal, and although it sounds like here we're dealing with the major mode, but uh, it certainly is one of the modes. So there's modality. There's also free rhythm. I'm really interested in free rhythm, and I, and a lot of this music, as you hear, is not pulsed, and so it's the singers are allowing the text to drive the rhythm, allowing the text to drive the rhythm, allowing the text to drive the rhythm. And I'm interested in, in how improvisers, how they forge rhythm. I mean, sometimes if you're dealing with a drummer, they might get into a groove, etc. But I, I love the idea of rhythm forming out of something other than pulse. So there's that. I also think that, and I've done quite a bit of research during my graduate school about improvisation during the Middle Ages. And I think one of the most underdeveloped but really fascinating areas of research is how improvisation factored into the history of chant and the history of polyphony. You think about it, before we had notated music, how were people making music? They were involving improvisation in some way. So they have this text and there's five monks who are gonna be singing this text for the morning, uh, the morning prayers, and there's an element of improvisation involved in that. And though we can't know for sure what that sounded like, there are people who dedicated their lives to recreating this, and many of the ones that I respect the most involve a serious amount of, of improvisation as part of how they understand what this music might have sounded like. So there's all that. And then there's just the fact that there's melodies here that I just think are beautiful. You know, just sure, beautiful. Sure. And so what would it be like if you take this melody and give it to Fred Lomberg-Holm or Jason Stein to play, um, or Angela a James to sing in the case of the re recording we made. Mm -hmm. The first version of this, of the early music festival project, was uh, just instrumental. Yeah. And um, I gave us a, uh, an Ambrosian plain chant, which comes really out of the Eastern, what we would now call the Eastern Orthodox tradition. So it's a mode that even had microtonality in it. And I, I gave it to uh, Fred and Frank and Jason to listen to ahead of time. And just the way they interpreted it, the way that they would bring their sensibilities of all the music that they've listened to, but hear this chant, this Ambrosian plain chant from St. Ambrose in Milan of the fourth century. 
and how they would interpret that to me is just yeah. cool. Yet, these musicians are taking a lot of chances, and it's sort of 
free and open at the same time, you know? So what, what is it again? Uh, uh, it's a woman named uh, Prabha Varsi. Okay. This is actually not someone I really knew. I mean, I literally, I don't think I know any quality music other than Mr. Pratelicon. Yeah. And I was just trying to explore a little bit more on this particular track. Yeah. yeah. My attention. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, see, there, the back and forth between the, the harmonium and the singer. It's hard to know if, if she's playing it or somebody else is playing with her back here. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> I'm hearing a clarinet there, and I know I've seen some big koali ensembles that have two or three clarinets in them. And it, I, I need to get more into that because uh, not, that every, not that the clarinet means everything to me, but I'm just always interested in clarinet traditions. And I don't know much about it and how they're playing and um, if they're using traditional Western clarinets or maybe they might be using GE metal clarinets. It's, it's really fascinating to me. Um, they're so liquid where they're playing, they might be using a little different kind of instrument. There's a few different styles of clarinet. There's a different fingering systems you can use. And some of them, the fingering systems work better for music that's in uh, makam mode. Makam mode. That's redundant. Makam. <laughs> makam and mode mean the same thing. Uh, so a lot of Turkish uh, musicians who play in the Middle Eastern tradition will play G Albert system clarinets, which is a very different instrument than I play. I, I couldn't even take one out and play it. It's so different. So uh, yeah, this is great. I'll have to learn more about this and, and get a copy of it. This tradition is uh, so so wonderful. And you know, if I may speak politically for a moment, uh, this, the Sufi tradition. It's like when I hear all this, you know, Islamophobia going on around the world. It's like. Check out the Sufis, folks. I mean, like, you know, there's there, there's uh, so much beauty in that tradition that seems to me it would calm some of the weird fears of <laughs> a few of our extant politicians right now. But that's maybe another conversation. Yeah, I, I think that's optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> to me, there's a connection between what you just played with the Jiswaldo mm -hmm. and this. I mean, it's sacred music from two very different traditions, but yet. Well, trying actually, to attain the same the same ideal in many ways. And I'm a technical, I mean, you're mentioning the, or at uh, sort of orchestration level, you're talking about the clarinets kind of, uh, you're the burgies, uh, winding around the music or something like that, which is to a certain extent, and that's the first track on the early music festival thing, that's, and maybe the whole thing, but especially for a beginning track to me, you're in Jason Stein, sort of weaving in and around the melody. Absolutely right, yeah. Yeah, uh, Angela is singing a very straight melody, and she's Sings it pretty straight, and Jason and I are all over the place. There's even one moment I think where we land on this unison together, to a high note together, and Angela's still keeping this, this melody happening, and we're just creating a desk chant above her. It is really coming out of this tradition and equally out of the chant tradition. They're all kind of intertwined. I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great. Oh.
the right at the beginning of it, I think, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a great piece. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautifully constructed piece of music, I think. And um, I've heard it live, but um, if not this recording, just the sort of big recording. This is the new one, this is the one that's down. Okay. Don't have the one or so. Yeah. I also play with a group that plays this piece or, or sings this piece pretty often, and I've, I've heard them sing it live. I've never had a chance to play it. Um, I just, I, I think there's, a, there's so much. Steve Rush is important to me, and I, I um, obviously I recorded the, the New York Counterpoint. It was, it was a huge undertaking, and my respect for him even grew because of the the um, strange complexity of this music that you underestimate. You know? I mean, I didn't underestimate it. I knew it was complicated. I just... Yeah, it's different to actually. Yeah, when you're sitting in a studio going da 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 for two days, you realize this is almost impossible. But So, what I love about this music, I have to say, is what I think reading a lot about Reich's comments about his compositional practice is I love hearing the process. He said he wanted... If I understood correctly, he wanted the process to be audible. That the process would not be hidden, but you could hear it happening. That's true. And, I, and I, I, I'm, I'm all for that. I mean, I'm all for any process. I'm all for anything. Hide it or don't hide it. But I like to, I like to see it, hear it happen. So, I, you know, you hear this beginning opening, this, these, these phrases come out, and then you hear how they shift and how they get transformed. And I really enjoy that ride. And I think this is one of his really great constructions. You know, there's, there's several pieces of his that I I love. Some that I think, you know, maybe aren't quite so strong. Um, but this one just holds together, and it has a kind of depth to it, perhaps because of the, the text, which I'm yeah. you know, drawn to. And this certainly draws on some of the stuff we've been saying with the last couple of Yeah, right, for sure. The voice is really important to me. I, 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 even though I'm a clarinetist, maybe what I've been I'm trying to do is imitate the voice. You know, and I, I love hearing voices. And you know, you've just played three tracks in a row with the voice. And the other, you know, again, I, the first thing I ever listened to with headphones on was Studs Terkel's voice. Right. So I'm always interested in in voices. So Steve Reich, for me, his best work is good voices. I love this other piece called Proverb, which is a smaller piece, which just takes like one little phrase from Wittgenstein, I think, and just kind of keeps circling this phrase over and over again. Really brilliant. Um, and I have written a fair amount of vocal music. I, I've been commissioned by some choirs. I actually have another commission coming up in May that I'm working on right now. And I have to say, the, the hardest thing for me is to not sound like Steve Rex, because I like the music so much. I have to, I have to not listen to it and, yeah, and just go into my own world, because I'll start writing stuff, and then I'll listen, and I'll be like, oh man, that just sounds like, like his music. So I have to be very careful about that. So what's happening right now, for example, um, is... So that seems to be uh, the thing that you're Yes. Yes. Yeah, I, if you 
Shona and the early take pieces. This is the same process he's been doing for forever. He's transformed it and changed it, and I, that's what's so fascinating to look at his work, is it's, it's altered. But yeah, this is phasing in the same way that we hear with with the piano phase and the very early take pieces, I think. It's, it's certainly embedded in that clarinet piece that I recorded with New York Thumbpoint. It's the same kind of phasing is there. So yeah, I, I love to hear this process being worked out. I can follow the logic of it, but it's also, for my ears, really enjoyable to just listen to. I'm drawn into it in the same way that I've been mentioning is important to me. And another level is something fascinating from a, a kind of musical logical standpoint, which is how many people around the world respond to this music. We go on YouTube, which is a scary place to go, but go on YouTube and look at this piece, or Desert Music, or any of Rush's pieces, and look at the comments, you know? And you. Yeah, and again, I don't think comments are a place to learn anything, but it is interesting from a sociological standpoint to see people who say things like, I don't know what this is, but, but I can't stop listening to it. And you think, okay, this is probably not somebody who knows anything about contemporary music. They happened upon this, stumbled upon it somehow, but they're drawn to it. And I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Like why, why does this music reach people? Why does Errol Parts' music reach people, John Tavner? Why do you think this? I mean, it seems like the easy answer would be that it's, if you subtracted the phasing from something like this, the melody is actually fairly accessible. Yeah, and the, the tonality, the modality yeah. here, um, I think that's got to be part of it. I also want to say... And I say that as someone who loves this piece. And yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. Um, but I also want to say that I do believe that hearing that, that the human ear can, can track the process of the phasing even without recognizing that they're doing it, that there's something deeply pleasurable about that on a perhaps psychoacoustic level. Sure. I see how. <laughs> his language immediately. Well, um, we're back to modality, aren't we? Uh, you know, Messian wrote in these modes of limited transposition. There were eight of them. Seven or eight, forgetting. Uh, and he's in mode two or three here. Can't quite pick it out. Sometimes he'd modulate between the modes. But the modes are just three. Well, these are modes that, he didn't really create them, but they're modes that he was fascinated by. So a collection of pitches that uh, only had a limited amount of transposition. So the, the major scale, you can transpose 12 times to each pitch of the scale that we have. These modes are, they have certain um, properties, they're intervallic relationships. If you transpose them after two or three times, they're just the same scale again, the same collection of pitches. So there's no unique pitches. So he was fascinated by the limitations of that. And so he here we have, I, I'm not going to get it right, but I, I think we have maybe mode two, which is the same as the octatonic scale, and it's an eight note scale, 
and just the kind of chords that he could create with these are immediately identifiable to me, as you just heard within a millisecond or two. It's not anything to do with me. Anybody who knows his music or has studied his music would hear that. But also the... Does that apply that applies to the chords that they're singing? Does that apply to the piano Yes, part? it does. Because I'm, I'm totally fascinated listening to this by the way that the piano part reminds me of, like, Jim Baker or something. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. It does, yeah. Yes, I think if we looked at the score, we'd find everything in the mode. Sometimes he would combine two or three modes at once. That could be happening here. But generally speaking, he would write in one mode. That tritone right there, wow. That's totally messianic sort of language. Um, the, the other thing you have going on here is that the piano could likely be bird call, transcribed bird call, which Messian was an expert in. And that's very likely what, what's happening there. So the piece, I might not be able to come up with it. Let me listen a little bit longer. Oh, that chord. See, that's, that's, that's the mode right there. The mode also has, it has this incredible dissonance and ability to build up these very almost atonal sounds, and then it'll land on a major chord, a major triad. And that's what I love about Messiaen. Yeah, here's Jim Baker. <laughs> yeah, or Cecil Taylor or something. Yeah. I mean, it's very yeah. um, out jazz. And, you know, Messiaen did not like jazz at all. Really? And was not interested in jazz, very interested in improvisation, but he felt jazz, and I quote him directly, he said jazz was a robber of music. It was robbing everything from what, right, sorry, I interrupt myself, triad, you know, yeah, just yeah. out of the blue, major triad. Um, so he felt that jazz was just taking what had already been done in the contemporary classical world of the 20s, 30s, 40s, which would have been him in many ways. He was a fairly egotistical guy. Uh, so this sounds like it's one of his poems. He wrote these, I, I think, kind of lousy poems that he would set. Um, they're never my favorite Messian. I mean, the music's great, but the texts are never my favorites. I know what this is. It's, it doesn't sound like one of the sacred works. It could be the one, the, is it the canyons to the sky? The, um, so what, what is it? It's, um, I mean, I'm going to just go ahead and pronounce it in bad French. Trois petits liturgies de la présence de Dieu. Okay, so it is a, it is a sacred work. Yeah, so, uh, sacred. Okay, so... <laughs> wow, that sounds just Yeah, it sounds like just, it's, it's amazing how he incorporated that field recording. <laughs> Yeah, it's probably a deliberate. I don't know what else would be. 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 He was one of the first people to be synthesizing quote-unquote world music into his style. 
Is any of that happening here? Well, it's happening everywhere in his music, because he would hide it. Here is difference of Steve Reich, right? Messiaen would hide his processes. So, yes, I, I am hearing it there, in that I'm hearing palindronic rhythms, right? He would write these rhythms that would be palindromes, and then they would just flip on each other, and he would take that out of Tala rhythms from, from Indian classical music. So it's there, but he, you can't hear it necessarily unless you recognize a rhythm pattern, and he had certain talas that he would fall back on. So Messiaen is a composer, I think, in one of the oldest traditions coming out of the Middle Ages, which is that he took a harmonic vocabulary and he superimposed that on top of a rhythmic vocabulary. What the medievalists called uh, talia and color. And so once you know that harmonic and rhythmic language, you know his music like it's your brother, you know, like the sound of your mother's voice or something like that. So that's why it's so identifiable to me. That's funny, in the Fred Lombard Home interview, he said, talks about running into uh, Braxton in like McDonald's or something, <laughs> which is a thing. Yeah. yeah, Braxton I know likes McDonald's. Yeah, I, I, but and, and saying like... Uh, you tell the story about you gotta, you gotta have that grease in you? Did, did Fred tell you that story? No, uh, no he just says something about like him saying like, I finished, you know, the pitch, the rhythmic logic of, of uh, composition, you know, 89E or whatever. Yeah. You know, but now I just need to go back and apply all of the pitch logic. Right. <laughs> yes. And that, that's what Messiaen was working in the same kind of language. He had rhythm logic and pitch logic, and he would superimpose those things together. Then, and those were all influenced by Greek and uh, Indian music. And then he would factor in this bird call stuff. And so, I mean, what a world. Just an incredible world. Then, on top of that, going back to what we've been dealing with the last couple of pieces with sacred music, is he was a deeply religious man, a Catholic mystic, who considered himself to be as much a theologian as he was a composer. So for him, he's handling the very tools of God here. You know? And I'm, I, Something about the, the essence, the fervor of this man, the, uh, the surety, he, he said about his music, my music is not safe, but it's sure. What does that mean? I don't know, but I love it. <laughs> and I, I, I heard that again when I was uh, maybe in college somewhere, and I thought, similar to when I first heard Jimmy Jufri, I'm like, I don't quite know what that means, and I'm filing it away for future reference, because yeah. I would like to be not safe, but sure. And we end on a, on a major triad. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> Love the use of the overtones. 
This person obviously has some kind of like deep association with the jazz tradition because there's moments when they're just like falling into that and almost swinging, right? Because it does that. And so, you know, all these different names are coming to my mind. I'll try to guess here in a moment, but, um, but it's just so... Controlled, and yet the harmonics that they are pulling out are not easy to do. Um, and they make it sound so effortless. So it could be Braxton, right? Um, not Braxton. Yeah, that sounds like Braxton. It could be. Um, and I thought for a minute it was it was Guillermo, uh, because it, there was a, it, it doesn't get quite as. Um, of course, yeah. It, 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 there are things that maybe say, no, it's not him because it's it's a little bit more um, blues inflected than Guillermo might get. So, I mean, I thought it might be John Carter, but. Um, it's John Carter. John Carter, okay. So, I don't. Is this from the, the folk, folk um, record, the solo record that's called Suite of Folk Songs, American Songs? It, it's not. It's from the Mosaic Box set. Has some stuff that he and Bobby Bradford recorded that were ne was never released. Okay. And this is the one solo. I actually have that box set, yes. um, and I'm surprised I didn't recognize it. But <laughs> it's funny, he doesn't. John Carter played so brilliantly in the high register, so I was kind of. If he had gotten up there more, I might have gone that direction. Oh, wow, that nice blue tone is beautiful. Right there, like those kinds of lines, those logical lines, outlining a sort of harmonic idea. I'm not sure if there's a composition involved here. I could almost bet there might be something that he's playing off with. He's all over the instrument. Compare that to Jufri. <laughs> Sorry to be stuck, stuck on those multiphonics. Right? That's great. But um, Jufri Wright would never play across the instrument like that. Okay, now if I had heard that, I would have said John Carter, because that's total John Carter. So the assurity comes to me just in the sense that he, it's obviously, it's obvious that he's got control over this instrument and he's able to use it as a conduit for his ideas and his what he's trying to express in the moment. I don't mean to imply there's some kind of like narrative here, just that he's expressing in the moment. And it's so deeply drenched in the blues. And that's why I maybe thought about Braxton for a minute. I never heard Braxton play B flat planet quite like this, so but um Braxton also has sometimes just shows that like deep blues sense that I, I don't think is in my playing. It's not really Juicy's playing. It's it's something different. Yeah, that's the Carter that I'm talking about. Like yeah. that sort of thing. I'll just end by saying that to me, what what I love about his playing is it just it has. It has so many components to it. He has such a mastery over the instrument, but he has subdued that into being expressive. And, I mean, that's, that's what Messiaen was doing, that's what Steve Reich was doing, that's what that beautiful Kowali singer was doing, that's what Giswaldo was doing, that's what 
Jimmy Dufrey is doing. So it seems to be the, the thing that I'm always uh, excited about. But it's, it's so apparent. This is called Uncle Dan, I think, right? The name of this tune. Don Byron from Tuskegee Experiments. 92 or so? None such? Yeah. This is pretty. It's a hugely important record for me. Uh, can tell you why in a second, but we'll talk about the music first. I just I love the way he plays on this tune. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I can. Yeah, it's, it's another important one to me. So Don is just an incredible, incredible clarinetist. I mean, he's just master technician on the instrument. Um, but like all of these people we've been talking about, transcends the limitations of the clarinet to make some really, really beautiful music. Um, this is one of my favorite tracks off this record, just for the intimacy of it. I particularly like he's the way he's playing this part that you just listen to. He's playing almost like the bass part, French work, he's playing almost like a lead yeah. part. Which is something I thought of this track because there's a, some of your music I've heard where you're kind of playing like a, a, a more like a... Ostinato. Yeah, an ostinato, exactly. Yeah. exactly. yeah, that's... I think that you're right. Um, You know, he is important to me because this whatever record came out in 92, as I think we said, and I was playing saxophone at the time. I was try I was the, the kind of trajectory of being a doubler, which is a woodwind doubler. You know, you play saxophones, you play clarinet, you play maybe a little flute. If you really want to get a lot of work, you could play some oboe and things like that. And I, I, was, I was blindly going down that road um, for all kinds of reasons that we can leave aside. But And then I, all I really wanted to do was play the clarinet. My first instrument, my first love. I was a mediocre saxophone player, but I never achieved the kind of sound I wanted on the instrument. This record came out, I heard this record, and it, it convinced me that one could be a clarinetist. And so that's why it's important to me, because it gave me hope. And I, I sold my beautiful Mark VI tenor saxophone, used the money to go travel around Europe for a couple of months, which was great. Uh, and people said, you're crazy, you're never gonna work, you're gonna be a starving artist. And I'm like, well, okay, whatever, I'll work at <laughs> a coffee shop, I don't know, but I have to do this. And really, this record gave me the agency to think about doing that. And I, I tried to thank Don once. I met him once, and I tried to. I, he wasn't too interested in hearing my story. But uh, what I like about Don too is he's a master technician on the instrument, great, great musician. But he's interested in a, in a higher aesthetic going on. You know, he's not just like trying to be make a good jazz album. You know, he's interested in these kind of themes. He's put out records of important Latin music that he's interested in. So he's got like this overarching aesthetic that is, um, you know, is, is really something. This is beautiful. 
as of yet, I have no idea what or who it is, but it's really gorgeous. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out if it's composed or improvised or a mixture of both. I mean, moments I like that. Ask you that. Well, moments <laughs> like that are clearly composed or yeah. There's you know, there's obviously material right there. Some pieces and responses to Messiaen's pieces. So, one of them was a response to the quartet Vienna Time. So, um, this is just gorgeous, and I, I love Takamitsu's music, and I need to know it more. There's a little bit of talk about me playing some coming up next year with a guitarist that I'm really looking forward to, but this is probably Tashi, the group Tashi that Stoltzman worked with for a number of years. Yeah, that's Peter that's... Serkin mm -hmm. and um, the Kovafian uh, sisters, mm -hmm. yeah. And Stoltzman, I think, commissioned several pieces. Um, Stoltzman, a uh, remarkable and lovely guy who commissioned, I mean, I don't know, probably 60 to 70 works for the clarinet. You know, he's, Stoltzman's still alive. And that's, that's a tremendous gift to the clarinet world, you know. Sure. The clarinet does not have a huge repertoire, and he, he's garnered a lot of new pieces, including, I think, at least two that I know for from Takabitsu, which is fantastic. But also the near counterpoint. Right, right. Oh, this is so beautiful. Yeah, this is one where I, I was just following, following leads, and I, you know, something you studied with Saltzman, and I just sort of, I, I didn't really know anything about it. Yeah. I ended up checking this out from the library. Well, here's here's a quick little story, uh, whether you want to leave this in or not, but when I was 11, I was fascinated by Richard Stoltzman. He was quite popular. He was like the yo-yo ma sure. of the clarinet during the 80s. I saw him on TV, and... I had bought all of his classical records and I listened to him incessantly and I just thought he was so amazing, you know. And so when I was 11 years old, I wrote him a letter. He wrote me back. It was really, really nice. Nice. Letter. Very encouraging. 
James, you know, continue on with the clarinet and his own hand script. I put it on my wall. I yeah. put it on my wall. You know, <laughs> when I went to, you just have like Michael Jordan. Yeah, no, I had Richard Saltzman and pictures of uh, Coltrane on my wall. But, so when I went to the conservatory where I knew he was teaching, and I didn't go there to study with him, I was studying with Randall Lake in the improvisation program, but I knew Saltzman taught clarinet there. I photocopied the letter, which I still had, and I put it in his mailbox and said, I'm here now, I would love to see you, get to know you. And we hung out a few times and I spent some time with him. We worked on the New York PowerPoint together. I was over at his house a few times and his son, um, his name just escaped me, but his son is a brilliant jazz pianist who lived here in Chicago for a while. We played a gig at Elastic together. He now teaches at a school in Denver. Um, I'm forgetting his son's name. This part is the Messian like ending with the major triad here, the way yeah. this ends. But anyway, so. No, Takamitsu and Messian really uh, a huge influence. I think they even Takamitsu once spent time with Messian. Pretty sure, yeah. Okay, but his son. No, his son. He's a great pianist. Um, this, oh God, this is just so beautiful. I really, uh, you know, we just we were talking on our break earlier about things that you've got bookmarked. You know, metaphorically speaking, that you got to spend some time with. Yeah. Takamitsu. I mean, I spent a lot of time with his music, but I don't think I spent enough. And so there's going to be like a year where he's one of my subjects, my units, as you got to say. <laughs> <laughs> Can you put it back up for a minute? Sure, yeah, yeah. You know why I thought go it wasn't that? You want me to put it at the beginning? No, no, this is fine. Well, actually, go back to the beginning again. You know why I thought it wasn't that? Yeah. These guys are going to kill me. They, they tend not to be that good of tonguers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys hear this. You can come get me. You can come get me. Keep it in. I, I, these guys are all people that I love and respect tremendously, but they tend not to be as articulate. This is brilliantly articulate. That's probably Mars on soprano. That's right. Uh, and so Ken's playing bass clarinet, Dave on tenor. But then there's Dave line right there. And then Nick on alto. Um, yeah, see that, that tenor line from Dave, that's just not the kind of articulation, so they were really going for something different on this. Um, so, <laughs> they're getting mad at me, but I didn't, I didn't mean it in any kind of pejorative way, it's just that, you know, we all have different ways that we put our tongue on the reed, and this kind of, like, really precise articulation is not what I tend to associate with Dave's style, Mars' style, etc. But, clearly they were working on something very particular with this. I've yet to hear this record in full. I've heard them live once, I've heard a couple of tracks off of it, but I haven't been able to spend a lot of time with the record. 
sounds really great to me. These are four brilliant musicians that I love and hear whenever I can, and have toured with at least two of them out of the four, and just love them as people. And, uh, so I'm, I'm gonna say I'm, I'm I'm always a fan of all reed groups. I, I yeah, love yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was gonna ask. Is I mean, so you play you know the new the renga, um, yeah, yeah, and this or you know. I, could be thought of as companion pieces. Yeah, they were, they were made at relatively the same time, yeah. too, which is interesting. I mean, my group has tended to be a little bit more clarinet-specific. Mm -hmm. um, and I would, my writing would never come out like this. Is this one of Ken's pieces? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds a bit like a Ken tune. Uh, my pieces would never come out quite like this, right? Which is why in, in we... What, in what way? I'm, I mean, now that we said that, there's this one solo. But yeah, but... Is that, piece, is that Nick? Yeah, and this yeah. sounds so great. Such a, a great, great player. Um, I, you know, I tend to not write as angular uh, as Ken would write, and also Ken often writes very literally. Like, you know, like I will always sort of recycle material, come back to things. My, that's my sense of form. Ken tends to go more linear. We've, we've talked about this a lot. Just the differences in those two approaches, those schemes of composition. Um, so yeah, these records were kind of made around the same time. Also, Keith's record. Um, like so. Yeah, the, the, uh, that one. But I've, I have, I'm not on the record, but I played on the live versions of that. So there's a whole bunch of us kind of interested in this. Of course, we have Roba and New York Saxophone Quartet and a million other groups that have done things like this. I, I mean, all one timbre ensembles or, or mono timbre ensembles, string quartets, Saxophone quartets, things like that. I think there's there's a lot to be done there. A lot to a lot of mistakes to make too. Sure. You know, you can overindulge the timbre, but there's also a lot to find. And these guys have found this, this beautiful angular, jumpy articulation on this track, which I think is you know really really cool. They're also every one of those guys are master slap tonguers. And I cannot slap tongue to save my life, which is this kind of popping sound they do in the clarinet. Uh, Dave and Ken, especially in Mars, are just amazing at it. Oh yeah, that's a Ken line, right? Right yeah, there. Yeah. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Yeah, that could have yeah, been yeah. out of the Van Mark Five. Or yeah, yeah. Like Although that. it also kind of sounds like something in like a big band. Yeah, kind of. yeah. But Ken is such a such a dis descriptive voice as a composer and as a player, but especially as a composer, which is all any of us are ever trying to go for, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I have this record at home, and I just need to get down with it, but it sounds really fantastic. Um, it's so interesting, you know, I'm glad you played this. Just, I mean, one of the things I hear across all these things that you've played, especially the composers, um, most of what you've played are people playing their own music, the exception, obviously, of the Gisualdo um, and the, the Kowali. Well, I don't know about the Kowali, I'll have to check that out. But And so we have... Um, we have, you know, these just these identifiable voices, right? You know, I, I feel like I know what I'm hearing when I hear that composition because I, I've heard so much of Ken's music and I know the kind of like approaches he might take. And um, that's the uh, achieving a voice and then sticking with it and working with it over the course of your life, of your artistic life. That's what great novelists do, that's what great painters do, it changes, you know, but. I saw this great book, uh, I was out in uh, this college that I teach at over the summers, uh, Deep Springs College, and I found this great Rothko book that had this, it was almost like a flip book, like a kid's flip book, but it had Rothko from the earliest painting to the last painting, and you could actually like 
flip it so you could see it like moving like yeah. an animated thing. Mm -hmm. It's a really cool way to, to line up an artist's work. So, you know, you think of like late Rothko. Yeah. You think of early Rothko, they, they look drastically different, right? Early Rothko, he's painting people in these kind of like almost Chagall-like sort of little scenes of, of New York and, and Eastern Europe, etc representational and then in the end we get these blocks yeah. of color right but when you flip through it like that you see this through line what we're talking about here is seeing that in a musician as well right so if you were to hear early takamitsu and late takamitsu you'd see it you listen to messian's early piano preludes that he wrote when he was in his 20s and you listen to saint francis of assisi his opera that he wrote at the end of his life and you see the through line you hear the through line listen to ken from 1994 and listen to Ken now, and there's a lot of differences, but you'll you'll hear the through line. Uh, I, I guess maybe hopefully uh, listen to Clang from 2007, and listen to Ranga, and you'll hear a through line. You know that's the hope that any of us can go for. Um, and one of the things I like about your project is that it makes all of us who are listening to look for those through lines. Right, right, think, right, right. Think about them in ourselves, but in the music that we're listening to. <laughs>